Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Richard, thank you for taking some time to join me on the podcast. That's a pleasure, Rowan. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. So it's great to be able to record this working from home today for me and uh, just to be able to connect with you and talk about a really important topic, which is retirement in Australia and how people interact with retirement, both from a financial perspective, but also from an emotional perspective and that journey that we go on. And so if anyone is interested in learning more, there is a wonderful link in the show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast player, you're approaching retirement or in retirement, please take a moment once this discussion is done to click that link and have a look at the report that Richard and the team have put together. It's really insightful and it comes packed with some great charts about retirement and how to deal with some of these issues that we're going to talk about. But firstly, mate, I thought a good way to start and the way I like to start is just have a few icebreaker, a few short answer questions, if you will. Bit of a putting my professor cap on and giving a test to the students. I'm not sure it would be uh, this way around with me doling out the questions, but here we go anyway. My question to you is what do you believe is the biggest problem facing pre-retirees? So this might be someone, say, 50 years or older over the next decade. Yeah, just a short answer to this one. You know, it could be heaps of things, but I think the fear of what lies ahead is something that most people are sort of troubled with. You know, they're uh, coming up to retirement. There's that sense of trepidation about what's ahead. Have I saved enough? So, yeah, those. I think that's one of the key ones. Mm. How about for someone that is maybe a little bit older? So say someone that's hit retirement or is just in it and they're maybe, say, 65, which is a typical age, say, for retirement. What might be the concerns or challenges that they have on their mind? One thing we found in our research is that um, many have a sense of lack of control or lack of confidence. And so, um, yeah, that's something that troubles them most. And often that's down to uh, not having a, a kind of a plan in place to deal with what, what lies ahead. Mm. And I think we've got a few talking points around that throughout the conversation around having that plan and what it actually means, both from a financial and an emotional perspective. And so if you could give some advice right now, so we are very lucky that this conversation gets heard by thousands of people, but if you could give one piece of advice to retirees right now, what would it be? There's so many to choose from, but the one that sticks out for me, I think, is having a plan B in place, have it in place already. 
that gives you that sort of sense of confidence, uh, knowing that you could deal with the unexpected that inevitably uh, or invariably happens at some point in your retirement journey. So have something in place and it gives you that sense of confidence about what could um, come in the future. That's such a good advice. And I think a lot of people don't know how to frame that. So hopefully this conversation will frame the rest of this and how you can actually go about implementing something like that in practice. I think what we should do is maybe start at the big picture, the macro and zoom into the micro, the, the kind of like what's the challenge that Australia and the, the world faces demographically? How have we solved that or tried to solve that through our policies and regulation for retirement? And then maybe we'll, as the conversation goes on, drill into some of those things in more detail. Can you maybe talk to, at the big picture, the demographic challenges that Australia is trying to face and some of the numbers that probably we need to be aware of? Of course, yeah, this is a topical area. You know, the government um, often focused on this. There was something called the Intergenerational Report published in 2021. There'll be another one, I think, published later in the year. They do them every couple of years. And for those that are interested, you could Google that and get all of the data um, that's in there. But um, a quick snapshot of some of the insights that came out from there. You know, the, uh, well, first of all, COVID had a, uh, an impact, as we all know, immigration ground to an almost complete halt during that period. And so, and that was an important source of new people coming to the population, keeping sort of the average age lower. We are an aging population like most other Western economies. And so that lack of immigration for that period of time there has been an effect. Immigration is back up to where it was pre-COVID levels. In fact, probably a little bit above that. I think 300,000 a year new immigrants coming in over the next uh, sort of 12 months. So that does have an impact on our economy and uh, a very beneficial impact. Those people are coming in working age and adding to the population, the working population. So part of that, there's something called the dependency ratio. That's the number of working people to retired people. And yeah, as an aging population, our dependency ratio is deteriorating despite the immigration that we're seeing. There's not enough, you know, replacement sort of new births coming through. I'll quote you some statistics here, actually, that uh, might be interesting. Yeah, in uh, 1982, there were 6.6 people for every single person over age 65. So there were lots of people still in the working population who were supporting those over 65. Today, that's down to four. So from 6.6 down to four, so quite a big drop. And over the next sort of 30 years, that's going to drop again to only 2.7. So uh, 6.6 to 4 to 2.7 over the next sort of 30, 40 years. So quite a change there. And of course, that puts a lot more sort of strain on um, the working population, if you like, and you know what, what's being used, that what, what the tax dollars are being used for and supporting those people and that sort of in retirement. The number of over 65s will double in number over the next sort of 30 years and will increase as a proportion of the population from 16 to 23% over that period. So, yeah, uh, as you can see, an aging population, it's, it's far less acute here than in other countries, you know, such as Japan, but uh, nevertheless, it's quite an issue. Australia has the third largest, uh, sorry, the third best sort of longevity in the world. Hong Kong's number one and we're number three. Um, so, uh, and not far behind. On average, people are living males till around mid-80s and females to late-80s, so that on average. And if you have a a couple retiring at age 65, there's a 90% probability that at least one of those people in in a typical couple will survive well into their 90s, so mid-90s, people retiring sort of today at at age 65. Very high probability that um, 
you know, at least one will survive that long. So, yeah, that longevity is an issue in terms of sort of government policy and planning. I'll quote you one thing, actually, that may surprise people, though, uh, out of that intergenerational report, um, the cost of the age pension, which is, of course, a critical part of um, the retirement benefits that many are eligible for in this country. And the cost of the age pension right now is uh, 2.5% of GDP. It's quite low compared to France, which is 14, just as an aside. They have very generous benefits over there. But yeah, so the cost of that age pension is reducing over the next uh, 30 years from 25 to 2.1% of GDP. And that may surprise you given the, the aging population, but that's really due to the growth in super. You know, super is now 30 odd years, 31 years since it all started. And Balances are now really starting to increase through time. People have had those high contribution rates for a much greater proportion of their working life. And so uh, there's less eligibility for age pension, you know, as your super balance increases in size. And so uh, the cost of um, the age pension is actually decreasing. Wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? And uh, that's really an aim of um, you know, government policy is to reduce the burden on the state. And that's one of the purposes of, of super. So I read in your report that there was around a roundabout, there would be around about 4 million retirees now, but with the, the baby boomer population, they'll be adding around 120,000 per year in the next little while. And I guess, like, what are the consequences of that from a government perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the government, the last number of years have been uh, sort of focused on this to a much greater degree. And, uh, we're seeing a much greater sort of focus in government policy. And I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of some of these uh, initiatives from the government. There's a review, for example, on the purpose of super. So the review was announced a few months ago, and that's ongoing right now. You know, what is the purpose of super? Is it purely for retirement saving? Or as has made some of the sort of headlines, some people are using super for other things and, you know, like dental care and, and so on. And, uh, and during COVID, of course, um, you're able to access super for emergency purposes if you're out of a job. So the, gov- the, the new government now, or the, the, the Labour government, have uh, instituted a review of purpose of super to really help focus the attention on, on what it's for and, and I guess provide more focus on design of, of benefits going forward. Another government review at the moment is uh, the Retirement Income Covenant, or it's not a review now, it's now it's, you know, a piece of legislation that... Um, super funds have to comply with. Um, SMSFs do not uh, have to at this point, but the covenant, uh, retirement income covenant applies to super funds. And it's, it's really been to um, focus the attention of super funds on providing better or more fit for purpose sort of benefits um, in retirement. You know, the focus of much of the super industry was on accumulation for the last sort of 30 years. And it's quite a competitive space in accumulation, the, the funds are competing with each other for members and perhaps had not thought about what happens after retirement as much. And so the government have really forced the hand there. And um, the covenant came in last year and, and has forced super funds to have a, um, a plan on what they do for their members going forward. And they'll be looking for implementation of that plan in the, in the next few short years ahead. So we'll see quite a bit of um, innovation there, I think, in, in sort of post-retirement offerings. And then the final piece of uh, sort of government sort of activity in this space is the quality of advice review. And um, I'm sure many will be aware of that. You know, uh, there was a review that was carried out um, last year, submitted to government, and it's now you know, under sort of consultation with the industry, the, the government are consulting the industry on 
some of the recommendations in that review. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but it's you know something that's hopefully bring advice, make it more accessible than it has been in, in recent years. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's a natural segue into the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is this idea that there are fewer financial advisors. Some estimates say it's halved, others say it's down close to half. But let's just say for round figures, maybe 15,000 advisors, give or take. And a lot of the papers that I see, the industry reports suggest that you can get financial advice maybe once off for four or $5,000. But then when I talk to a lot of retirement experts, a lot of financial advisors who deal with this type of thing, transitioning and so on, when you include the first year of like fees or administration fees, it's actually closer to ten, maybe even $15,000. And so I guess the question for you is, Richard, how do does the financial industry or financial professionals support this and how can we do a better role in helping retirees? Yes, well, that, and that's very much what the quality of advice review is, is look, aiming to achieve, you know, just make advice more accessible. I don't think anyone argues that uh, getting some advice around around retirement is critical, really makes a huge difference to people, you know, getting better outcomes, feeling more confident about uh, what lies ahead and how to deal with the unknown, unexpected things that can happen. And, and so the quality of advice review is, brought through a concept called good advice, which um, is a little different to the sort of the best interest and comprehensive advice that exists on the current sort of regime. And uh, that regime sort of came in post sort of Royal Commission where some of the less scrupulous sort of advisors might have been um, not doing the right things by their clients. And so it's almost a Belt and Brace's very, very comprehensive sort of framework was instituted to replace that, which has led to the almost an overly complex and overly comprehensive sort of advice framework that we see today. And so, yeah, the quality of our advice review is looking to bring the pendulum back a little bit and make advice a little bit more accessible and, you know, offers the opportunity for rather than fully comprehensive looking at um, everything sort of advice, looking at more limited, greater number of opportunities for more limited scope advice, just giving a clients a, a nudge in the right direction you know, under more limited sort of circumstances, just to uh, often people just lead a, a little nudge in the right direction in certain areas, and so um, and that can provide can be provided at sort of much lower cost. We won't necessarily see the the fully sort of um, comprehensive statements of advice, which were fifty pages long or, or however long they were, and uh, obviously difficult and expensive to produce. So that just reduces that sort of compliance burden on advisors and enables them to provide more advice to a greater number of people at a lower cost. And that's really what we'd look to achieve. I think we will also see greater use of technology and sort of robo solutions to help with that, you know, modelers and and that kind of thing that do exist. But uh, there's a lot of uh, regulatory burden with with modelers, and and so that should be eased, we think, under the review. And so people just jumping on a modeling system to um, get an idea of what um, scenarios they might see ahead could help them make educated sort of judgments on on how to, uh, for example, invest their portfolio. And I think another area would be just raising general sort of awareness education. There's no substitute for getting greater insights. Part of our research that you'll see in the report is that um, clients, members who have a greater sort of level of awareness of superannuation and investments, they feel more comfortable, 
are able, they feel empowered, they feel in control of their retirement. And it, you don't have to get to a huge level of technical competence, but just understanding a few of the basics through education really can help with um, helping people feel more empowered with their retirement, uh, over their retirement. And this is something that, you know, I see as well is that the collision of technology and finance underway, it's probably only a few years away before you can get those simple kind of like insights from modeling and what have you, where maybe it pulls information from your bank account, your super fund. It doesn't make decisions, but maybe it just helps you understand where you're at financially and what that might look like into the future. But the legislative kind of group of our society needs to make that possible for the rest of industry to to have the freedom to do that. Uh, One of the things, Richard, that I see a lot in people that come through the RAS network or even just people that I speak to in my personal life, a lot of them I do encourage to get financial advice approaching retirement, not when you retire, not tomorrow, do it today. And there's a distinct pattern that I see occur. For example, in the lead up, people are worried about how much they actually have. And then once they they get into the mode of planning and they're ready to do something, sometimes they become very hands-on and I can go down the wrong path from time to time. And even once they hit retirement, then there's this, um, this moment of, okay, I'm going to check my super balance every day. I'm really nervous. I'm really anxious about the financial element of my life now because the income's been turned off, right? There's no more income. So it doesn't solve a lot of the problems anymore. And my question to you is basically what are some of the common emotional traps that people might find themselves in as they go through this and what would your advice be to them? That's obviously a great question. And, um, you know, one of the things we've seen actually came out in our, that research piece that you referred to earlier on. So the, the nature of an individual's retirement has a big impact on um, their sort of emotional well-being. You know, the research that uh, we carried out showed that there was, it was actually more than 60% of people are retiring earlier than expected. You know, they expect to retire at 65 or whatever the age is, and it's actually happening earlier, on average, about a year and a half earlier, in fact. And for those who haven't sort of planned ahead for that, that can be quite a um, an emotional event. It could be quite traumatic in some cases. And, uh, and what we found there is that um, those who've already, as you rightly say, planned ahead, they've, they've got some advice sometime ahead of retirement, they've got a plan B in place that we mentioned, that has a huge impact in mitigating or lessening the impact of an unexpected early retirement, which is becoming more and more sort of common. That's one sort of emotional thing I'd mentioned. Another one is around sort of market volatility and, you know, the age-old question, what, what do you do when the markets are volatile? And uh, of course, they, they, they always will be at some stage. And, um, and of course, the behavioural um, sort of tendency to sell out if you're invested in a portfolio in, in perhaps some riskier assets, equities, for example, you might sell out when uh, your markets have fallen. And of course, you know, most research that I've seen and uh, that has been has been shown that people generally sell at the worst possible time and they miss out when markets recover. You know, they markets fall 20 or 30%. And we have seen that in, in the last, you know, with COVID and other sort of instances of market volatility people selling out at the wrong time and then missing out when it recovers. So there's an old phrase and I, I you know, hesitate to use it, but it, it, I think it is quite a good one. It's time in the market counts, not timing the market. It's an old saying, but um, I think it does resonate. It's best just to stick with your long-term plan, 
be invested. Your time horizon is probably longer than you think. If you're age 50 or even 60, you've probably still got 20 or 30 years or more to to be invested. Don't think about your retirement age as your ultimate horizon. You'll be living way beyond that and the benefits of some of the riskier assets in your portfolio will come through over a longer period. Another sort of thing we, we found in our sort of research was the you know, the first year of retirement um, can be a little bit more sort of stressful. Um, I think you uh, yeah, I think you alluded to that. And uh, people are, you know, they've just gone into retirement. They haven't quite got into the groove and um, haven't perhaps found a purpose and they're, they're less busy than they were. They feel a bit, um, you know, at a loss sometimes of what to do with all that time they've got on their hands So um, and can spend excessive time looking at their superannuation fund and, and perhaps switching in and out and doing these things. So, yeah, that first year of retirement can be more difficult. But what we found with, um, you know, the research we did, we, we looked at people at you know, different stages of retirement, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years after retirement. And we, we found that uh, those who are, in fact, even in the second year, it's quite a bit less. People have settled down a bit. And um, we found the happiest cohort of um, retirees were actually those who were 10 years or more from having since retired. They've really settled into a pattern and, uh, you know, they found their purpose, they feel in control. And, yeah, they, they were the happiest sort of uh, sort of cohort. Um, so I think having a purpose, whatever you do, looking after grandchildren or helping in the community, whatever it might be, um, that's really important. Um, uh, having a sense of control as well, and control can come in a number of ways, but having a plan is a really useful way of, of you know, being able to take control of your sort of retirement. And that talk can also come from knowledge education, just uh, I mentioned it a moment ago, but just get familiar with the superannuation, the rules, and uh, a bit about investments. And it just gives you um, a bit more knowledge to handle some of the, those um, difficult things when they come through. I'm familiar with this. And if my father-in-law is listening, if he isn't, he should be. Because I see that people tend to go on this kind of phase where they're really busy at work in the lead up to retirement often. And then they've got to, they find a lot of purpose in work and saving for retirement. Then they hit this stage where they're like, like the honeymoon stage of retirement where you're very happy. You look at this, it's wonderful. But then you're you have to kind of reorient yourself and that generally takes a while. And in between that, you go through like dis- was it, uh, disenchantment or something like this, where you just feel this sense of like, where's my purpose? So it's interesting that your research comes out and shows that it's about 10 years into that journey, which is when they achieve that. But the question I always get and the financial planners who appear on this show always get, Richard, is this question of like, how much do I need? And we've all had this to us once or twice, maybe many times more in our careers as finance people. But given your background, being in the industry and the roles that you've had, I'm keen to ask you just to kind of unpack some of the things that we'd say as a profession. And, you know, that there's the, the 4% rule, the, the, you know, the safe withdrawal rate, and then there's the you know, a number of times your income and all these different types of heuristics that we use as an industry. So, Maybe if you could just talk to some of those, that would be really helpful for the audience. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, well, firstly, I wish I had an easy answer. Wish I'd figured out, you know, how much do people need? And uh, uh, sorry, but I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that answer. And it's really down to, um, you know, everyone is different. Whenever I get asked this question, I do like to quote um, Bill Sharp, who's a Nobel Prize winner, prize winner, you know, you know capital asset pricing model. And he uh, made a statement, uh, I was probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago, saying, yeah, retirement is the nastiest, hardest problem in finance. 
And it's because there's so many variables. You know, there's uh, you know individual you know needs, wants, you know, the risk attitude to risk, you know, how they feel about taking risk and what they are looking for in retirement, and then the variability of markets, you know, longevity. Yeah, you know, there's just so many variables. It's um, there is no answer. And uh, as part of my my job, I travel to other parts of the world and um, you know look at um, systems in you know, Europe, US. UK, other places. And, you know, there's no country has figured it out because there isn't an answer. So um, I think hopefully take some comfort from that. Yeah, but to give you a few a few things, to a bit of food for thought, I mean, um, some people can target, it's something called a replacement ratio, you know, your sort of post-retirement income as a proportion of you know, your income before retirement. That can be something to help you sort of target sort of a spending rate and a savings rate and um you know, so a replacement ratio sort of two-thirds or three-quarters is is quite common now those numbers can be quite ambitious you need to save quite a long time and have a big uh retirement pool to, to be able to sustain that but uh nevertheless that's something that um you know a replacement ratio is something that that people can find useful to give them a focus about how, how much i need to save Another thing to think about is, you know, the phases of retirement, you know, how much uh, is enough? Well, you'll probably spend a lot more in the early part of your retirement when you're younger and you'll go traveling. You may go buy a caravan or a motorhome. And, you know, so you most like to spend a bit more earlier on in your retirement. You know, and that's from age 60 to sort of uh, 75 or so thereabouts, maybe a bit later, depending. But after that, you know, health deteriorates inevitably and um, people tend to spend more time at home. And so spending does go down quite a lot. Spending can then increase later, age 85 or, you know, thereabouts, it can increase, you know, with um, healthcare costs, of course. So those different phases of retirement can cost a different amount. That Now, there is government support, of course, as well. You know, My Age Care is something that uh, people can use to help help them with those sort of late stage sort of costs it's a complicated area so yeah we're thinking about the different stages of retirement people often are quite conservative in the early, early part of their retirement because they're concerned that they haven't got enough and so they tend to underspend and that was very common that was an outcome from the um, retirement income review a couple of years ago that showed that a lot of people were were spending far too little actually in retirement and were there was a, a statistic there where um, more than 50% of retirees were at the point of passing on were had more than 90% of their balance at retirement still in their super account. You know, so they were massively underspending and probably living too frugal sort of a retirement. And that's really down to spending confidence. People are, there's a sort of a, a shortage of spending confidence early on in retirement. People are naturally sort of conservative. Yeah, other things to think about, you know, there's, um, so you talked about the 4% rule, that's, yeah, that's um, sort of well known. And one reason for that, in, in this country, at least, is that, um, you know, the uh, minimum drawdown requirements from from the government, you know, start at 4% between age 60 and 65. Um, and then, but they do increase, you know, it goes up to 5% above age 65. And then, you know, in increments up to, I think it's 11% above age 90. So it, it does step up. So you have to draw down that amount, although from your super, although you could just take it from super and put it in the bank or something. But um, so that's a heuristic that that is commonly used. A heuristic that I used uh, that might be interesting to people who are sort of saving for retirement. Uh, it was something from my sort of earlier 
background doing uh, sort of retirement, the defined benefit scheme valuations. A savings rate of half your age uh, was actually pretty good. It it was actuarially pretty close to um, a good rate of saving would be. That would give you something around a replacement ratio of sort of 70% if under assumptions you needed sort of 30 plus years for that to sort of work through the system. But it, it was actually quite a good uh, rule of thumb and it's something that's easy to remember as well so uh, wow I haven't heard that before that's great okay yeah well, that's uh, that does uh, now the rate of course does increase above the superannuation guarantee later on so you you have to put that in by some other means and, and perhaps, yeah and non-concessional contributions or whatever it is concessional contributions up to the cap that that, that sort of thing but um yeah, if you can save at that sort of rate, if you're a younger saver, that should give you a decent um, level of sort of super by the time you, you get to uh, sort of retirement. So, uh, yeah. So I, I can imagine some of the academics who get their 17 or 18% uh, super, they're probably, they're laughing, they're thinking, maybe maybe I'm some of the way there. So um, that's great. Thanks for taking us through that. It's really interesting. You mentioned at the top of the show, Richard, this idea of a plan B, and I'm Curious to pick your brain on what that actually means in practice. So, what is the plan B, and how do you think about it? Yes, and uh, plan B. Yeah, I mentioned it's one of my yeah, key things, and I think it's really helpful to have that sort of plan B. Just gives you that sense of confidence, that innate confidence that you would have through um, knowing that if something unexpected happens, you've got a contingency set aside, you've got something that can help you through. You, you've got some sort of plan that. that can help you feel more confident. So, I mean, that could just be as simple as having a contingency fund. It, it could be um, having a, a cash bucket, if you like. So some people use different sort of buckets. Yeah, so it, it can be something quite simple, you know, and it just gives you that sort of innate uh, sort of confidence. So it would be different for every for each individual. And I think um, think about if something did happen, sort of play it out, what would you do in advance of that, and then put that in place. And um it really will help people. And uh, the research we've done shows the emotional journey of those people who've got the plan B is much more stable. They're, they're much more confident um, through time. That's the, out of all the charts that you had in your retirement uh, handbook, this is the one that definitely jumped out to me the most, which is that there's three distinct groups of people in retirement. There's the planned retirement, the reactive retirement, and the forced redundancy. And you measure like the emotional barometer or stability, or there's like a, a chart there from that, which is adapted. But it actually shows that people that have a planned retirement were far more emotionally kind of like, it seems like positive, like on the barometer, were more positive and stable through time. Whereas those that maybe had a reactive retirement experience that excitement of, hey, I'm retired, and then come crashing back down before eventually finding themselves. Whereas those that were in the forced situation of retirement through illness or whatever, they're obviously not going to have the same impacts and a feeling towards retirement, which, you know, that's, I guess what we're, what I'm implying here, Richard, is that it doesn't necessarily mean you've got every day of the rest of your life planned out, but it's just about not being hyper-reactive and, and thinking about this ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Having that, uh, as I say, that plan, yeah, the, the plan retirement is, is sort of Nirvana and we would all sort of, uh, you know, strive for that. But as we mentioned earlier on, you know, a lot of people do retire unexpectedly early. It's, it's surprisingly common. That can lead to that sort of um, forced redundancy or you know, quite unpleasant sort of emotional journey that, that can happen. 
And so those, you know, that sort of reactive retirement, you know, it's unexpected, but, you know, the plan B is in place and uh, there's still a little bit of an emotional journey to go through, but it's far less of a, a roller coaster, far more pleasant than, uh, than it would have been had no planning sort of taken place. I guess I deal with a lot of people who, like I'll, I'll give you a family example, a family couple that have just retired in, in my family. They hit retirement, they were really worried about it, and then they come out of the financial planning meeting and the financial planner said, you can retire. We believe, according to our modelling, you can retire with um, your $80,000. And they were so worried that um, $80,000 a year, mind you, this is, they were so worried about everything and they were just racking their brains and they did have enough. But a lot of people don't think they have enough. And probably, I, I speak to people like this too, just recently actually, I spoke to someone like this, who probably did have enough, but really probably just needed the reassurance. But they put off those things you mentioned before, like put off going on a holiday or put off spending on the, the car that they want in retirement or whatever the case may be. What, I guess, strategies, methods, or ideas would you have for people that may be in that scenario? Yeah, no, you're right. It's very common. And I mentioned earlier on about that um, that retirement income review from uh, a couple of years ago. I really brought that out. The um, Almost the majority of the population are living a, you know, a too frugal uh, sort of existence in retirement. They're, they're sort of have that lack of spending confidence, you know, have I saved enough? And, and so they, they do underspend or they just try and live off the income that their portfolio sort of generates. They're not drawing down any of the, like the capital, the principal of, of their retirement savings. And so there's a great deal left at the end and, uh, okay, it gets passed on to the next generation. But, um, you know, the government's interest in that is that they, uh, that's not what they created super for, you know, they provide all the tax benefits for people to use those benefits uh, in retirement. And uh, hence the Retirement Income Covenant that we talked about earlier on, they're looking to improve the focus on post-retirement solutions that super funds offer. So yeah, to, yeah. To answer your question, you know, the um, actually the retirement income covenant can give us a good framework. The, the, the covenant talks about the, the major risks in retirement, being market risk or you know sequencing risk, inflation risk, and longevity risk. Those are the three major risks that they they call out. And uh, so if you're able to create a plan, think about your you know, structuring your retirement um, in a way that addresses those risks. Those are the key risks that the people face. It's not that difficult to create a plan that deals with each of those. So, uh, and by doing that, you know, you create greater certainty, create greater sort of spending confidence, and hopefully, you, you know, you can spend a bit more freely, knowing that you, uh, yeah, there's no guarantees, but you're you are more likely to to be able to bong into sort of a poverty. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned sequencing, so that transitioning to retirement and transitioning like your life basically the longevity and the inflation like those three risks that you called out from the report are really important and they give people a starting framework i guess to think about what is the inflation risk what is the longevity risk and how do i sequence as well and again financial planning and there's a lot of good helpful information out there on that i've got a couple more questions for you richard which is the first one is around risk profiles, a lot of people automatically assume, and you touched on this just before, actually, I, I did not expect you to say what you said, but people, when they, they plan as if 65 or whatever their retirement date is the end date. So when they hear things in the media about like, you should have a conservative portfolio, they think, well, I'm going to almost sequence into that point And at that point be very conservative because that's my time horizon. And I guess, how do you think about that? And how should people think about that? Yeah. And 
And you mentioned the risk profile. You know, risk profiling is, is, is commonly used. It's a sort of a, you know, in the response to a, a number of questions, people will um, arrive at a you know, low, medium, high sort of approach to risk taking from their risk profile. And yes, it can be useful, but it's difficult to get right. It, those questions are still, you know, there's a lot of variability in there. And um, and I alluded to this earlier on, one approach that I think is really useful, thinking about, you know, when you're in retirement, think about using a, a bucket strategy. Um, and it's not rocket science at all. It's actually very simple. It's where you, you know, set aside a, a, a certain proportion of uh, your portfolio into a low risk bucket it could be a you know, cash or something similar to that it could cover your future needs your spending needs over the next sort of one two three years something like that and then take some risk with the balance of your sort of investment portfolio and you can even divide that into um, different buckets you can have a medium risk and a high risk you know and the high risk one would be the one with a longer sort of time horizon associated with it um you know, for your spending needs in sort of five years' time and beyond. And your sort of medium risk bucket could be for the three to five-year band, you know, around that, you know, a pragmatic sort of approach to splitting your portfolio across different uh, portfolios. And and if there's market volatility, don't worry about it because you, you've got the cash portfolio, you're drawing down your income from that, you're not drawing it from the risky assets which are need to be invested for the long term. Almost don't worry about those. Let them go through their sort of volatile you know, periods. They should come back through time. And in the past, they always have. They bounce back and they'll deliver those those outcomes, you know, to manage that sort of inflation risk. And then just, um, you know, you can take comfort from having that sort of structure in place. That could be a plan that you have in place. And so, yeah, I do like that approach. It just it's simple. It's easy to understand, intuitive. And you can make it more sophisticated if you've got the time and the inclination to be a bit more sort of precise with it. So, uh, yeah, I'd suggest that. I really like that idea. And one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show, Richard, is that idea of, like, so people like sequence into retirement, right? And I think that's a mistake. I think there's nothing to say you can't take this really simple approach that you have and have that kind of the cash bucket or whatever you've got that is designed for that two to three years around that period where you switch off from retirement and you keep that as your safety net and you have those other buckets to support different time horizons. I think that's really useful framework. So thank you. Um, My final question, which I'll get to in just a moment, is a really hard one. So I'll get to that in a sec. But if you do want to visit the Fidelity website, there will be a link in the show notes to the report that Richard's referring to as well as some of the others that he's referred to. Uh, And you can find out more about the Fidelity range of funds and everything that Fidelity offers in that link as well, as well as you'll find a link to Richard's LinkedIn profile as well if you want to go there. I did task you in advance with bringing to the show five risks that you might see retirees making with their portfolio. Now, I won't hold you accountable to all five, but even if you just had one or two or a couple or whatever you've got to help us out. And the idea here is that people could take these as counterpoints. So here's Richard telling you one thing, Maybe how do you go and avoid those things uh, happening to you in the future? So, mate, I'll hand it over to you. As many as you got, uh, that'd be great to know. Right. Well, uh, hopefully, I've, I've got five for you here. So, uh, um, but uh, yeah, I'll keep it sh- sort of short and sweet. I think um, first one I'd say is major risk is not having a plan. I think we talked about you know, the benefits of a plan B or just having some sort of structure for your you know, the way you're looking to um, deal with your retirement. Yeah, having a plan is is really critical. 
Uh, number two, you need to be flexible and adaptable. Things happen in life. Markets will be volatile. You know, life events happen. Any number of things could happen. So have a flexible, adaptable approach and don't get uh, deflected but from the longer-term plan by you know shorter-term uh, fluctuations and, and things that, that can happen. Uh, another one more sort of lifestyle, number three, they invest in your health early. That was one thing that came out. Uh, you know, we asked sample retirees what what were the major things that really helped them and just getting yeah when you retire just um try and look after your health because we know it deteriorates through age and uh, so start that early on in your retirement and then educate yourself people if you you know understand more about the superannuation system investment markets you don't have to be a an expert but just it gives you more comfort a sense of control, a sense of empowerment. So, um, you know, get yourself up the curve. Listen to these podcasts and just um, build your knowledge. And then number five I've got here, being overly conservative with your spending is uh, overly conservative with taking investment risk. Those are mistakes, uh, I would suggest. You know, you'll be surprised. You know, if you've got the plan in place, you can probably take a bit more risk than you think. Your horizon is probably longer than you think, and you can probably spend a bit more than you think early on in your retirement in particular when, you know, it's a shame not to enjoy your retirement early on when you're healthy. So don't be shy. If you've got a plan in place, that gives you the the comfort to be able to do that without uh, feeling that you're out of control. Great. And I love the five on the list, Richard. And just so we know... Obviously, you've got to have that plan in place, but uh, Richard is the, the head of client solutions and retirement at Fidelity. So I think uh, you can take it from this guy's uh, studied actuarial science as well in the past. So got a good uh, sample size to make these types of assessments. I really do appreciate you taking some time to share some of that wisdom that you have, mate, with uh, with the RAS community and myself. It's a real delight. I'm sure I'll try these on with uh, some of the people in my life. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Anne. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, mate. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.